welcome to Lions, Towers, and Shields. I'm your guest host, or was I always the host, Nathan Alderman, uh, with me tonight to discuss Dead of Night, a particularly eerie 1945 English thriller from the legendary Ealing Studios, are Shelley Brisbane. Hello, I looked in the mirror and somebody stole my show. <laughs> and Randy Dotinga. I am looking forward to getting googie with it. Googie withers, I mean. <laughs> and I'm just sitting here with my cursed ventriloquist's dummy <laughs> on a literally dark and stormy night. So we have all the ingredients we need for a perfect spine tingling movie for Halloween. Um, Dead of Night is a 1945 anthology film from Ealing, which is the studio best known for its uh, light and funny, although kind of also dark, comedies. Um, it ha is directed by four different people, Alberto Cavalcanti, who is uh, a Brazilian director who was best known previous to this movie for directing Went the Day Well for Ealing, a particularly brutal wartime thriller about Nazi paratroopers trying to take over a British town. Uh, Charles Crichton, who uh, directed The Lavender Hill Mob, one of Ealing's later uh, legendary comedies, and would uh, finish off his career by directing A Fish Called Wanda. Not too bad. Um, Basil Dearden, and uh, who sort of has a journeyman career through uh, British film and television. And Robert Hamer, who would go on to direct one of the greatest uh, and most beloved uh, Ealing films, Kind Hearts and Coronets. That's the one where a guy murders his way to the top of the inheritance list of a aristocratic British family. And all the people he murders are played by Alec Guinness. If you haven't seen it, it's great. I highly recommend it. Seconded. Wonderful movie. But Dead of Night is the only horror film that Ealing ever made, and they made it before they made a lot of their best-known comedies, when they were still trying to figure out what kind of studio they wanted to be. So that's what we're here to talk about tonight. It has uh, five segments. We'll go through each of them and, and discuss them. But first, Shelley, uh, I'll put it to both to Shelley first and then Randy. What did you guys think of this movie? Is this your first time seeing it? It is my first time seeing it, and I, I love nothing better than seeing a classic era movie for the first time because it doesn't happen all that often. Not to not to humble brag or whatever, but I just have seen a lot of movies of this era, and so it's, it's especially fun to see when I have not. And I liked it. I didn't think I would dislike it, but I liked it more than I thought I would because horror is not a genre that I spend a great deal of time in. I like some of the early 30s horror movies, even ones we've talked about here, but uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I liked it a lot. And Randy, what about you? I had not seen it before. I didn't know what to, what to expect. And it felt like one good episode of Twilight Zone and one really good episode of Twilight Zone and a lot of other crap stuck into about <laughs> over an hour and a half. Uh, yeah, the, 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 there were two segments I, that I liked and the rest didn't really do much for me, but there's other interesting things about it um, that I'll talk about that that are kind of fascinating, uh, kind of just tied into the movie. That talk, you know, what it's based on and some of the performers. So I feel like it's maybe um, that gives it a little extra extra bit of interest to me beyond the the movie itself is kind of the background and the performers. So this is, yeah, this is more of a spooky movie than a scary movie, which is what I like. Right. Um, yeah, I, I can't really do scary movies, but I love spooky movies. This, Val Luton, we talked about The Body Snatcher last Halloween. 
And um, I feel like this movie is interesting because, for one thing, I find the framing segment as compelling as each of the individual vignettes, if not more so. And for another... So there's horror, and then there's psychological horror, and then there's what I like to call philosophical horror. And that's where the ideas that a film or, or a work presents are so chilling that they they stick with you long after you've seen the movie. Um, the, the TV series Severance is a good example. Whatever is going on you know, in, in that series, the ideas that it raises are more spine-tingling than anything you actually see. And I feel like that's the case here with, with the twist ending, which we'll get to. And I have a question about that, that ending that I'd like to put to you both when we get there. But um, So the framing sequence is that an architect uh, arrives at an English country house for, for a weekend stay, and there are the usual complement of upper crust, lovable British, uh, you know, aristocratic folks hanging out there and, and having the loveliest time chatting. Uh, his host has a hilarious mother who steals a lot of the interim segments with the completely funny and, and off-the-cuff things that she says. But as soon as he gets there, the architect is seized by the weirdest feeling of deja vu. He knows everyone in the room. He knows what's going to happen. And he knows, although he can't remember exactly what happens, that this is going to end very, very badly. And as the film develops, the other guests begin to uh, tell their own stories of brushes with the supernatural to try to comfort him and push back against the know-it-all psychiatrist who's trying to convince him that he's not really, you know, thinking this. Um, and that's where we get into the different segments of the film. Let's talk quickly about the framing story. What did you guys make of it? What what interesting things did you note about it? Did it hold your interest or attention? To me, it did, because I think the the man's dilemma, the architect's dilemma, is expressed compellingly. I think the actor is good. And I think the way it's written, he's able to sort of bring his consternation about this thing that's happening to him to the rest of the house when i when the movie first started and knowing it was a quote horror movie unquote the guy walks into this house full of people and it's like okay it's some sort of old dark house thing coming up right we're all this guy is stuck in this house and something terrible is going to happen to him so i had really different expectations about what it was going to be and it it ends up being compelling and i think what you say about the the minor characters and the the psychiatrist sort of pushing back that stuff is interesting and it gives the movie a sort of a lighter texture in the opening but but more interesting is just that the guy expresses his consternation at what's happening to him in a way that makes you want to keep going and obviously they don't resolve that early on it's a framing device and then we have all these other stories and we'll get back to him but he we're not we're not going to dispense with his story and be done and then go on to something else we're still interested in wait how are we going to close the circle on that frame it, it came across as more static to me i that just a lot of talking a lot of exposition and i got a little bored because i didn't i wasn't being pulled into it as much as i had hoped i would be and so it didn't really pick up until we started getting into the, the individual segments for me. I think that the framing sequences do something interesting in that they show you as the, the movie wears on the passage of day into night. 
and the lighting is very cleverly matched to whatever the mood or the tone of that particular moment in the story is. When when it feels dark and ominous, uh, and you're starting to get increasingly worried about Walter Craig, the 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 architect played by Mervyn Johns, um, the lighting gets eerier and, and, and a little shadowier when suddenly the mood has been lightened um, and, and you think everything's going to be okay. The bright lights are on and, and it looks friendly and wonderful. And when stuff is about to hit the fan, suddenly the room is lit only by that amazing fireplace and it gets really eerie really fast. Um which I, I just thought was that was a really clever thing. And I love the bits of comedy that they work into the framing sequence, both with the mother's offhanded comments. You know, she's that, that British upper class, stiff upper lip, complete obliviousness. You know, if someone walked into the room with their arms severed, gushing blood, she'd be like, oh, dear, well, that's frightful, too. Try not to get it on the carpet. Um or, or the the teenage girl's mother who comes in and doesn't have time to listen to anything, even as she's saying, "Oh, but but Mr. Craig is going to bash me on the head." Yes, well, he can find someone else to bash you on the head. <laughs> there are a lot of characters in those scenes, and I thought, as I often do when I see a giant ensemble that I have to get to know, or I feel like I have to get to know all at once. I'm like, oh my God, do I really need to know all these people? And as it happens, of course, since this is only a framing device, we're going to get more details on a number of these other people in their own stories. It's, I think it's just a sort of a pet peeve of mine. When you introduce an ensemble very early in a movie, it's it's really hard to make them all stand out from one another. And uh, fortunately, this wasn't a, too big of an issue for me in this one. No, it definitely helps that you get the individual stories to flesh them out more. So they're not just randos telling a story that didn't happen to them. Each of the stories reveals a little bit more about their character and has its own little surprise beats within it. I really wanted the the mom to tell a story. I, I That's did, true. That would have been fun. That would have been great, but I don't know. I don't know if she's interesting enough to have a story to tell. You notice that her her son's story is the least spooky. Yeah. Although it, right? it serves a clever strategic purpose in the film. Um, so let's let's get into some of those stories. We begin with uh, a, a segment that is colloquially known as the Her- the hearse driver about a, a race car driver who ends up in the hospital. Um, while he's in the hospital, he has a strange vision of a hearse waiting outside that tells him just room for one more, sir. Um, and the next day when he's released from the hospital, he's about to board a bus. The bus driver is the same person as the hearse driver and says, just room for one more, sir. And in terror, he, he flees um, the bus only to see it crash off a bridge and kill everyone on board. It's based on a short story by uh, the famous British author of ghost stories, E.F. Benson. Uh, and it, it was adapted into, uh, a, I think, at least one, possibly multiple Twilight Zone episodes. Yeah. So what did you guys think of the hearse driver? I liked the actor. I, I, I thought he was he was compelling. And there's this sort of little sub story of him making time with the nurse and getting ready to get out of the hospital. And so I act, it actually sort of I don't know why, but it really took me by surprise when the surprise when the whole hearse driver thing came up, because you talk about lighting and there are a lot of scenes, this one particularly where they're in the hospital, where it's not lit to signal a horror movie, except later when we need it and when we're in the house later at, at night. And so there's there's a sort of like a everyday regular order kind of way that some of the scenes in this movie, like this one and the one in the hospital proceed that always sort of 
takes me aback when I get to the point of, oh, we just had that weird experience where it's the, the bus driver is the same guy, and then the bus goes all over the edge and all the people die. And you're just like, oh, I see. We're, we're, not, in the, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're in a different movie than, than I thought maybe we were. And, and that, the race car crash, too, that just was like just there for half a second. <laughs> but it's like, whoa, that doesn't look good. <laughs> and uh, somehow he survives and ends up in the hospital flirting with this nurse but um I, I thought this was it was an okay segment um i was uh, i guess i was a little disappointed by the i thought it would be working up more than than the hearse guy but i liked the hearse guy still i mean that that actor just is perfect for that kind of role he just um just the way he looks just uh is a grabber but i i, I kind of felt a little disappointed by the by the way it ended it's definitely the shortest segment, um, but I like what it does with lighting and framing and sound, the way as the premonition approaches, the sound around him drops out, and the way they just focus on the closed curtains softly bl blowing in the wind. Very Kubrickian, I thought. Um, and yeah, you, Shelley, you mentioned that a lot of the times the lighting is in this is not like scary movie lighting. There's some gorgeous lighting in this, especially in the next segment. Um but um, a lot of the times the lighting is very ordinary and, and brightly lit. And that contributes to something that I really like about this film overall. It's unsettling. And not, it's hard for movies to be unsettling. They can be scary, but to, to kind of get under your skin and just feel subtly wrong is a really fun sensation for me. And this movie accomplishes it very well by having these strange and uncanny things happen more often than not in the middle of bright sunshine when everything's supposed to be okay and we're supposed to have these fears of ours banished. Um, but yeah, the Hearst Driver is the, the shortest segment. It doesn't really wear out its welcome the way some of the later segments do. Right. But it also, yeah, I, I agree with Randy. It could have used a little more buildup to make the, the punch pack a little more punch. That that sudden crash zoom in on the Hearst Driver's face, though, is still a great little jolt. Um, and Miles Mallison, if you look him up on IMDb, he plays the Hearst Driver. He has a very pleasant face, but there's just something unaccountably sinister about his his wholesome English cheerfulness. I don't think he was in any Hitchcock movies, but he looked like he could be. He would be, be just perfect. Yeah, I think the we'll as we go through the segments, we'll talk about our opinions of them individually, I suppose. But what I would say is that generally speaking, I think the order of the segments makes sense. There's one exception for me. We'll get to that. But uh, I I think the order and the relative length of them and the punch each of the segments has relative to the other. I think it's pretty well organized and the fact that this is the shortest and that basically the story is the simplest. I mean, the, the sort of, you know, this is this is this terrible thing, that, this accident that has happened. And then he sees this spooky thing and then he survives and then we're done. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't waste any time. It sort of sets the table. It lets you know it gives you a little jolt and then you're on your way. And, and I I like that. And there are certainly some segments. I, I like all the segments in this movie to one degree or another, but there are certainly some that could benefit from a little more of that economy. So next we have uh, the second least scary um, segment in this story, but I really like it. Um, the Christmas Party. Uh, Sally Ann Howes, who would go on to have a, a very long career. I think she just died a couple of years ago at, at 
uh, 104, perhaps. Um, she was uh, best known for, yes, yeah, she died. Oh, she died at age 91 on uh, the 19th of December last year. Uh, she's been dead for less than a year. She uh, was best known for playing, and this is how you know that Ian Fleming wrote the movie, Truly Scrumptious in uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. But here <laughs> she's just starting out. Brand new, maybe not the best actress, um, but she's a teenager who recounts being at a Christmas party on um, at a friend's house with a, a teenage boy who clearly has the hots for her and a bunch of much younger children. They're playing party games and they turn to a form of hide and seek. So she goes off uh, into the the wilds of this this old house with a creepy history of a, a, a murdered child in it. And of course, she stumbles into a nursery where she meets a crying little boy in old fashioned clothes. And what happens next is not in all what you'd expect. It's sweet and it's kind. And she sings to the little boy and she makes him feel less scared and less sad and less alone. And she puts him to bed. And um, and then she discovers uh, when she gets back down, when her friends call her that, oh, wait, that's the little boy who was murdered. That nursery has been shut up for years. No one has been living there. And we get the, the great stinger at the end where she insists in a very wonderfully childish way, I'm not frightened, I'm not frightened, I'm not frightened. And then she just breaks down and starts starts crying, um, which is a nice little punch, I thought, to, to the end of that segment. Uh, otherwise, she is, again, this is her third movie. She'd get better. She's not <laughs> super great. What do you guys think about this segment? I really, I really like her performance. I, I looked up, looked her up. I think she was about fourteen, um, so she wasn't one of those. It's not one of those movies where the actor is twenty-five and they're playing a fifteen-year-old. Um, she was really that young, and I, I just, I, I thought she was um, totally believable and fun to watch. And the thing that I, that I find really interesting about this segment is that it's actually based on a, a real-life murder in England in 1860. And it's, it became famous about 10 years ago. There was a best-selling uh, true crime book called The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, which also mm-hmm. became- It's really good, I read yeah, it. Yeah, and it became a, um, a, a TV series in, in Britain. And it's about this real case of, a uh, I think he was a three-year-old boy who lived with uh, a couple siblings and mom and dad and a few other family members. And- uh, and it turned out that his uh, his half sister, who was sixteen, uh, committed the murder, uh, at least seemingly allegedly. So. Yeah, allegedly, and was convicted of it. Um, and it's a whole fascinating story. Uh, 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 and according to IMDb, I didn't catch this, but apparently, you actually see the sister. I, lurking in the background in this. No, you don't. You don't. Did you I looked that? for that too. That is a doll. In one of the oh. earlier scenes where the boy is crying in his chair by the fireplace, you see a large doll dressed in white next to the fireplace. It is very clearly a doll. And yeah. it would have been so cool if the sister had been lurking right. in the background. I looked for that, but no, it's it's like the um, the quote unquote ghost in Three Men and a Baby that's just like a stand up of one of the characters uh, reflected in a window. Um, but no, it's uh, you can't trust everything you read on IMDb. <laughs> but that would have been awesome. Yeah, well, I thought it was a well. Um, it was a, when they when when she's wandering through the house, um, and in those different rooms. I thought it was it was interestingly lit, spooky. Uh, 
this whole segment kept my attention. Uh, I don't know that it was fun to watch the, the kids play whatever games they were playing. I, um, and yeah, I just thought it was an interesting, uh, interesting, enjoyable segment. And then didn't really go anywhere, but it was, I was along for the ride. I, I didn't mind going along for this. This is where the movie starts to be unsettling and where I think the choice of segment order is interesting because I thought the Hearst driver thing, I mean, obviously he sees uh, the, the bus go over the edge and for the character, that's freaky. Uh, as an audience member, I sort of didn't react particularly viscerally to that. Uh, but this one, and because kids are involved, of course, and you have a protagonist who's a kid as a young person, and then you have the little boy who we find out about as the segment goes along, and, and the lighting is different. And so now we're, we're sort of getting into the meat of the movie. And it's like, if you thought that we were just going to, you know, have a little drawing room adventure with uh, with a few cute stories, uh, we're, we, we're getting into some serious stuff. And so I, I feel like it, it's, it's ratcheting up in a, in a way that I think works for the movie. Yeah, I, I think this segment, for one thing, the lighting is beautiful. But the thing that intrigues mm -hmm. me about it is that it builds tension by playing on your expectations that something bad will happen and nothing bad happens. And what you, you get instead is this poignance and this tenderness and the, the, the shock at the end is just in how the character reacts to it. That's the real punch. That's the knife twist. Um, but yeah, it, you, it builds this steady sense of dread because you know that's not a living child. You know that unlike this this girl who should know better, this is not a, a normal you know living child's room. But it doesn't go. He's not like an evil, cursed ghost child who's going to haunt her the rest of his days. He's just a sweet, lonely little boy who wanted some kindness, and and gets it from this this kind, gentle soul. Um, who is, you know, on the run from a, a teenage boy who is way too aggressive about trying to kiss her. Um, but yeah, it. I like how the different segments in this don't follow any set genre. There's there's uh, an ironic twist ending. There's this mood piece. There's, uh, you know, a, the, the psychological thriller later on. There's the gothicness of the haunted mirror segment coming up next. And then, of course, there's the golf story, which we'll get to. Um, but I like that each of these segments, while still feeling of a piece with the rest of the movie, has its own flavor of spine tinglingness about it. I, I just wanted to mention, you talked earlier about how the, the Sally Ann Howes, who plays the girl, she recently passed away. And that's been a pattern through a lot of our uh, recent podcast episodes uh, with uh, actors and actresses who who, real, who recently passed away. And I'm getting a little suspicious of Shelley. Um, <laughs> well, they did die first, you know. It's not now. I guess you could look down my editorial calendar and see who you have yes, to worry about. Because... I would think that you, that you, <laughs> you know, you you kill them off. Oh my God! Our next movie, Keeper of the Flame. I think Daryl Hickman is still alive. Well, yeah, I, I'm a for now. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, presenting the tale of the cursed calendar. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I think about there's there's a Deadpool online where you where you each year you write down which celebrities you think are going to die during the year, and they have they have a rules, and one of the rules is that you can't kill people. 
uh, that are on your list. So I good rule. It's a rule. But they I'm never saying. say anything about killing someone on someone else's list. No, that's fine. Strangers on a so train. So we're man. gonna go all strangers on a train yep. here. Crisscross. <laughs> right. That's you're gonna crisscross with another movie podcast. You know, I'm off about crossover episode. <laughs> yes, we're going to cross over with unnamed true, true crime, crime prod true podcast cr- here. Uh, but but to turn away from Shelley's own string of murders now, let's Thank let's you. move on to the next segment, the haunted mirror, um, which is about a haunted mirror. A a lady who has very poor taste in cursed furniture buys a uh, antique mirror for her husband to be. Uh, it ha- comes with its own sinister history. It begins to exert a terrible sway over his personality and ultimately ends up threatening her life. This stars the awesomely named and apparently quite renowned in Britain, Googie Withers. Um, yes. But I was really struck by, you know, this segment, you can take it or leave it. It's got a nice kind of gothic-y flavor to it in the the story behind the mirror. But what I really like about this segment is the monologue by actor Ralph Michael as Peter, the guy being haunted by the mirror. Um, it's in bright daylight in the middle of his apartment. Everything is normal and happy and fine, but he conveys the deep sense of being disturbed, being haunted by this mirror in a way that I found really compelling. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because it's it's one of those segments that, in theory, you could end all this by letting the wife do what she wants to do, which is destroy the mirror. And he doesn't really say so explicitly, but it seems like part of his being haunted by this is that he can't look away, right? So he, he says to her, no, don't destroy it. And he doesn't, that's not a, that's not a big motif of the piece, but it is fascinating because I, yeah, that was my first thought. I was like, just smash it, and then we wouldn't have any more segment. But they're Actually, English, like- Shelley. They're English. <laughs> <laughs> I I like this. I I liked the uh, the cinematography and the lighting. Uh, it's a longer segment, and it really does rely on both actors uh, doing a lot in there. And I, I agree with you about the the monologue. And I, you know, you do. It, it for me it is suspenseful like i don't know how it's going to i figure the mirror is going to break at some point but what's going to happen is it going to suck him inside is it going is he going to be dead by that point and i didn't really see the climax of the scene coming exactly the way it did even though it's sort of told that that's what's going to happen i don't know if that makes any sense but uh you know because because there's violence in the past of the the people he's seeing through the mirror and violence ends up happening in this segment but i was still surprised by it, which I feel like I have to credit the director of the segment for just pacing it well and the actor for uh, building the level of tension in such a way that, like, I I didn't see it coming. Well, you know, there's always that, that British saying that you need to keep a stiff upper mirror. Um, so they obviously did that here. Uh, I actually, I Googled Googie and she is... Uh, she died about 10 years ago and had quite a career uh, and was, was uh, I guess, hosted a talk show in Australia in the 80s. And one thing that I picked up on her was her hairstyle. Um, it's a hairstyle that, that I also noticed something similar on Nurse Ratchet's in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And there was an article after Louise Fletcher's death that said that the, the character had a, a 1940s hairdo because the character was basically stuck, you know, 30 years earlier, 20, 30 years earlier. And I saw that same hairdo on Googie Withers. And 
And now you know where it comes from. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I like this this segment. I think the the second best of all the segments. It just had a a nice spookiness um, and and a, some darkness to it uh, that that I enjoyed. That maybe I didn't quite catch enough of in the first couple segments especially when they talk about the uh, the antique dealer talking about the beer's history uh and it it kept my interest through the whole thing um unlike the next segment <laughs> which we'll talk about uh, yeah I, I thought uh it was effective it would be like i've got like i said earlier kind of a mid-range twilight zone episode I was thinking of, I've watched uh, the picture of Dorian Gray fairly recently, and it sort of gave me some of those vibes because he spends a lot of time looking at this portrait in that movie and is freaked out by what he sees. And so there was, just, and that's made about the same time. So it's just interesting, you know, somebody looking into a mirror or a photo or, or a rather painting and trying to figure out what the meaning is of what he sees is just really an interesting device. And it, and it does kind of have that, you know, you're you're normal, and you're with somebody who's losing their mind. And what do you do? How do you do? How do you try to help them? And uh, you know, you're questioning them. You're you're. You know, she keeps trying the to get him back to reality, and then eventually, uh, kind of adjusts and then becomes part of the mirror's reality. Yeah, it is interesting. Aside from just smash the mirror, which again they're English, they're not going to like randomly vandalize their own household furnishings uh, without very good reason. But I do like that in this story and and throughout the movie, people aren't stupid. They, you know, they twig pretty quickly to you know the, the rational solution to everything. You know, she suggests he sees a psychiatrist, or maybe they should just get rid of the mirror, and you know, and and he you know, tries to, to play it cool and be like, no, 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 I'm, I'm fine. It's okay. Um, because again, English, I do like that how nasty this segment is willing to get. There's some real poison in how the mirror infects, uh, the guy so that he begins to, you know, talk about jealousies in their own relationship, you know, little, little cracks that might've spread. Um, and I also like Gooky Withers reaction at the very end after she has smashed the mirror and saved herself. She, there's a great hysteria in how she plays it, how she's she's trying to be English again and stiff up her lip and go, oh no 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 this is fine we'll just we'll, but but there's there's this great like desperate hysteria in how she's like tearing the mirror off the wall and being like it's it's worm eaten and rotten and and just that that like that fierce desperation while trying to cover it up and be polite I thought was a great combination. Yeah, I agree. Often in a scene like that, the sort of climax of it would just be breaking the mirror and then we move on. But she's she's dealing with what she's dealing with. Right. And it's and so, yeah, it's a it's a it's a nice touch. I liked it. Yeah. It it emphasizes that this isn't these aren't just things that happen and then they're over. They leave scars. Um, And so at this point, that's a pretty eerie story. And we've gotten to a pretty dark place in the movie. And then the movie does something very clever. It tricks us with a lighthearted and wacky story that is maybe a little too lighthearted and wacky, but it has its moments. Um, the, the, 
easygoing host, just as our hero, uh, the architect, is is about to leave and try to break whatever cycle of, of doom he feels is coming, is persuaded to stay by this funny, lighthearted story about two golfers who fall in love with the same woman, decide to play a round of golf for her. The winner apparently cheats. The loser then promptly marches directly into the nearest water hazard and drowns himself and then comes back as a ghost and then things get complicated. Um, and it's notable because it stars Basil Radford and Naunton Wayne, who are probably best known as the stars of the Charters and Caldecott Cinematic Universe, uh, which starts in Alfred Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes with these two guys who are, you know, you could play a game show with these two guys, gay or English. Um, <laughs> it's never quite certain, but they are two traveling companions, Charters and Caldecott, who... Uh, keep having weird adventures where they battle the Nazis while just trying to take vacations in uh, four different movies, three of which were written by uh, the great Frank Launder and Sidney Gilliatt. Um, and here they are paired again, not as Charters and Caldecott, but they might as well be uh, two guys who are, you know, so consumed with their friendship and each other and playing golf that they can barely notice that other things are going on around them. Uh, what did you guys make of, of this segment? Well, I was wondering, Nathan, could you and I play a round of golf for, for Shelley's hand in marriage? <laughs> I no. think Shelley's spoken for. <laughs> I mean, there might be some issues uh, regarding bigamy and consent and, and sexual orientation, quite frankly. But I think we could work, we could work through it. I have lost entire control of my show then. <laughs> the problem is I don't play golf, so oh, you should be all yours. I, yeah, I'll give you a big handicap. but <laughs> <laughs> I, I hated this segment with all my heart. I really did. I just thought I am not a fan of like the sort of comedy teams, whether, whether British or American, that were quite common in the 30s and 40s. And I, I don't know uh, their work. I, I did read the history that Nathan was talking about, how it began in The Lady Vanishes and that they did other movies together, all of which I'm sure I would have hated. The oddest thing to me about this segment is that H.G. Wells wrote it. It's like, what? Uh, OK. Um, and I just I didn't. I mean, I was I was startled by the yeah, let's play a round of golf for the woman. I would have gotten over that in a couple minutes if the segment had been better. But it's just like, what is this segment doing in the middle of this mo otherwise perfectly fine movie? I just hated it. My, my, uh, I watched this with a friend of mine a few nights ago, and he actually fell asleep during that segment. And then later on, I said, what do you think of the golf segment? He said, what? What? What golf segment? What golf segment? <laughs> and I was like, well, you lucked out. Well, there was from what I read, this was one of two segments that were that were actually deleted from the movie um, in an Amer American version. There was a, this was deleted and uh, I guess there's some dispute about which the other one was, but it may have been uh, the the Christmas party. And, uh, and so that ended up with some references in the, in the, uh, in the final few minutes. It didn't make sense because they were, the callbacks uh, didn't make sense to some people in the, in the American audience because those segments had been deleted. Um, but yeah, it, it, I, uh, I kept expecting it to go somewhere and to be actually funny. Um, I was aware of these two guys. I think I've seen them in the lady vanishes and knew that they were a thing that, um, showed up in various movies, but, um, I just thought it was more, more of an, an odd segment. And then the ending, uh, when, uh, one of them vanishes and the other one goes off to uh, have a good time with uh, 
with uh, the wife. Um, well, you, I mean, you really think these two guys need to end up together. That's like like. Yeah, I wonder if the wife feel like feels like the right one won. I don't know. Um, but but I also th- think there's a my my initial reaction was, wow, this is a real change after the last segment. And I feel like they've changed the momentum of the movie in a bad way. Now, I think I would feel differently if I liked the segment. I don't mind a change in tone. I don't mind a little comic relief in parts, but I have real trouble separating my belief that that's a fine way to do a movie from my feelings about this segment. <laughs> so what, what, what bugs you about it? Is it the, kind of the, the, the weird uh, sexual dynamics? <laughs> sharing, no, sharing I'm a wife fine or? with the weird sexual dynamics. I, I just find it, I mean, it's sort of a, it's, it's like, you know, two guys goofing and being, first of all, I don't care. Like they're playing golf and I just don't care. It's already started with this whole thing about, you know, let's, let's play golf for this woman hand, woman's hand. And as, as I say, I could get over that. It's dumb, but it's fine. But then I just don't care about them. Like, oh, they're going to go play golf now. So that means they're going to talk about golf for a while. And yeah, I was surprised when the stakes rose a little bit, but just sort of the, the sort of rambling around on the golf course and, and doing hijinks. I don't know. Just, just put me off. Yeah. I mean, the marching directly into the water hazard is, is great for me. But I think the problem with this segment is that it starts about three different times. First, you have their their golf rivalry. Then you have the haunted golf round where, you know, for way too long, Basil Radford is having, you know, his ball floated around on strings while they make spooky noises on the soundtrack and everyone, you know, pulls ridiculous faces. Uh, I like when it gets to the part where he is being haunted by a ghost who cannot leave, who has forgotten the way the signals to do to dematerialize and return to heaven. <laughs> I thought that was a clever idea that the segment takes way too long to get to and doesn't do enough with. But I do love the image of of um, Radford and his bride coming out of the church under a, a salute of raised golf clubs. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, with Naughton Wayne carrying his caddy bag with him, still frantically trying to figure out the hand signals. And I do, if, if not for the unintentional creepy sexism at the very, well, intentional creepy sexism at the very end of the segment, I do think that the kind of turnabout they have is clever. Unfortunately, it, it then ends with, well, if you're not using that wife, I guess I might as well, which is unfortunate. And but yeah, why did Basil Radford? Why did he disappear at the end? Because uh, he, like, he figured out the right hand signals oh, to okay. dematerialize. <laughs> the same random that he he figured out by complete random chance the exact uh, series of hand maneuvers that apparently one needs to bodily ascend to heaven. Because I said, so where is he going to go now? Is he he's not going to haunt anybody anymore? He's just going to go up to heaven and presumably play golf with some dead people or something. Yeah. I would imagine heaven is just like a really great golf course for him. He mm. he wasn't really into that lady anyway. He was he was right. more too interested talking would, about his golf. Like, hey, this trophies. is an excuse to play golf with my friend, <laughs> my close personal friend. So yeah, this is definitely the weakest of the segments. Although there are some good things in it, but I love the way it is dis- deployed in the larger whole of the movie because it makes you let your guard down. It makes you think everything's going to be okay. It's this lovely little breather. And after this segment, the lighting is brighter. People are happier. The uh, The architect is convinced that it's all in his head. And then the movie starts to drop a series of hammers <laughs> because now we get to the 
malevolent ventriloquist dummy, which is just the worst in the best possible way. So let's talk about that segment with uh, Michael Redgrave. Speaking of, of uh, curious sexual dynamics, Michael Redgrave as a, uh, a ventriloquist who seems to be bossed around and bullied by his own malevolent dummy, who seems keen to ditch him for another ventriloquist who thinks this is all just an elaborate and not especially funny joke. And uh, turns out that poor other guy, the joke's on him. What did you guys make of this segment? I really enjoyed Redgrave's performance a lot. I mean, he's just so creepy and so terrible. And, and I, I, you know, almost any ventriloquist segment in anything is, is going to be a little creepy. But this amps it up. And I uh, I enjoyed it, but I was very unsettling and very creepy. <laughs> I wanted this to be the whole movie. I mean, this is just so, so fantastic. And this is actually only the second movie that's gone to the um, evil ventriloquist dummy um, uh, as a as a theme. There was one called The Great Gabo from 1929, uh, which stars Eric von Stroheim, of all people. Um, but this I think this is the one that really started that. And there's there were a couple of Twilight Zone episodes about. Uh, troublesome dummies and then just a, a ton of movies uh, uh, up until up until now uh, about this the theme I don't know what it we can talk about what it is about about ventriloquist dummies that makes so many of them go go evil in movies <laughs> but this seemed to be the real start of it and and Michael Redgrave uh, he's just a very very haunted performance I love the dummy. The dummy seems very realistic. Uh, I never felt like it, it felt like it was a real um, evil dummy. <laughs> if, um, I, I didn't feel taken out of, out of the story by by the way it looked and the way it acted at all. It seemed uh, very realistic. Yeah, Hugo is a nasty piece of work. He is really a mean little bastard. Um, which makes this segment even more disturbing because he's just he's really putting the screws to poor Michael Redgrave, who uh, I, there are parts of his performance that I really like in this. And then there are parts where he's like, oh, now I have to play crazy. Time to bug my eyes out and look around wildly. <laughs> well, I suppose that's fair. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I, I, I take that point. What I like about it, because as I say, whether it started here or, or however the, the trope of ventriloquist dummies being creepy I don't know that I've ever seen one where the ventriloquist dummy actually wants to leave and go to another ventriloquist. I just love that as as a touch because, yeah, murderous ventriloquist dummies that they, they want to kill their masters or kill the master's girlfriends or whatever it is. That's a thing. But I, I've never seen one where it's like the goal is to if you're a loser. I'm going to go find which I guess kind of makes sense on a psychological level that somebody who's into ventriloquism, one of their issues might be that they are feeling insecure and <laughs> they're aggressions that are self they're 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 self-harming you know but it's yeah this is a really between hugo the dummy and uh, maxwell the ventriloquist there's a real abusive relationship going on and i love how the segment just walks that line is it all in michael redgrave's head or is hugo really a creature of his own because there are times like when Redgrave's in another room and Hugo's talking and Redgrave does not know what Hugo has been saying or when Hugo turns up in someone else's hotel room uh, and, you know, Redgrave 
apparently was not previously in the room to put him there. It's it's really creepy. And and the ending. Um, did the ending remind anyone else of Psycho? Oh. I hadn't thought of no. that. That's interesting. Not not only in that, that slow push-in mm-hmm. on Redgrave's face and the very, very creepy thing that comes out of his mouth at the end, but on oh. the way that as it fades back to the framing story, Redgrave's eyes float and linger in the dissolve the same way that you get a glimpse of Mother's face under Norman Bates's uh-huh. in that last scene of Psycho. Oh, I like that. I hadn't thought of it, but I like it. And, you know, this film was produced by Michael Balkan, who was a uh, a longtime collaborator and early backer of Alfred Hitchcock. So I'll, Hitchcock almost certainly saw this film at some point. Oh, sure yeah. he did. Yeah. There were a couple other things that I, I noticed. Um, there's the uh, the character of the, um, the nightclub. I think she's either the owner or the manager. Um, her character is named Beulah, and it's played by an African-American actress named Elizabeth Welch. And she doesn't have a lot to do, but she comes across as firmly in control and in very much her own her own woman in this movie. And that struck me because how how rare that was to see a black woman who's not a maid and not a side character and and has some agency and some some power and influence uh you know back in back in 1945 she reminded me a little bit yeah i was thinking a little bit of uh the only other one i could think of offhand was Teresa wright who uh an actress who's in the movie babyface with uh Teresa harris Teresa harris yes that Teresa harris who's in a the movie babyface in the 30s with barbara stanwyck and they're both uh you know friends and uh and basically work, trying to work their way up in the world. Um, but yeah, so this seemed like a, an unusual um, African-American character. And then Michael Redgrave is interesting, not just because you know he, he's the father of um, Lynn and Vanessa, but also that, that I always uh, look for GLBT connections to the movies that we, we do on the podcast. And he was bisexual and actually had a, a lover um, while he was married um, and had a lover for decades that his whole, his kids knew and adored. And I always wonder when you have characters, when you have actors who have complicated uh, sexual lives and they're playing characters like this, who have complicated, complicated same-sex relationship basically i always wonder about the connections between real life and and the life on screen oh yeah that had to be intentional the the relationship between him and hugo is is definitely there's definitely a sexual element psychosexual politics going on there yeah yeah it's it's weird and and yeah i i also love elizabeth welch's beulah and i also was thinking of Teresa harris and you know even in in her best roles uh you know, in a couple of Val Luton movies that she's in, Cat People and I Walked with a Zombie, Harris gets to be, you know, intelligent and thoughtful and not at all a stereotype, but she's still like a servant or a waitress. Beulah's the boss. She is decked to the nines and jewels in a fabulous evening gown in the club that she owns and runs, where she is singing and speaking in two languages. It's a really awesome role and a really awesome showcase. Yeah. And, and I wish he'd been in more of the movie. 
She is an American uh, and a singer by by trade, and then she went to England and made a lot of movies in the 30s and 40s. So so most of her filmography in that period seems to be English films rather than American films. And so I don't know, maybe for her, England was like France was for a lot of other African-Americans who moved over at that time. I don't, I don't know for sure, but... Uh, Anyway, she seems to have had a nice career at that time. She co-starred with Paul Robeson in a couple of English movies, ah, which I now sense. want to see. Right? Same. So from this segment, which is told by the uh, the psychiatrist who's been needling our architect hero the whole time, but not unkindly, just you know, in his own blustery, egotistical way, trying to help... And from here, if you thought this, the movie stepped on the gas when the ventriloquist dummy showed up, well, this is when the, the movie just floors it. Um, we get a nightmarish closing sequence that weaves together uh, elements of all the previous stories we've seen. I'm not going to spoil it because it is the kick in the pants at the end of this movie that you are not expecting. It is really creepy and surreal in a lot of delightfully spine-tingling ways. What did you guys make of that final segment? I, I had a sense of deja vu. Like, have, have I seen this in the beginning of this movie? Hmm. It, it kind of snuck up on me. In fact, I had to watch it. I was... Uh, s- sometimes I'm doing other things when I'm watching a movie, and I probably shouldn't do that, but uh, I looked up and the credits were rolling. I had, had watched some of the segment, and I had to go back because it it's fairly abrupt too it's like not only is it unexpected but it's just I'm trying not to spoil things but it's just like whoa okay and and the movie I should say like the movie is 117 minutes which is not actually I'm sorry 77 minutes so it's a little under an hour and a half which is not a very long movie they pack a lot into the movie and the segments are all of different lengths and and this segment um it feels it feels short it is a breakneck pace it really captures the jumbled, surreal, helpless feeling of a nightmare. There's a thread uh, of through what, what happens to, to Walter Craig, the architect, in that last segment of persecution, of being hunted and pursued and spied on and imprisoned. Um, I thought the way that it, it called back to the different segments was very clever, but mm-hmm. wow, does it really capture that that suffocating feeling of being in a nightmare. And then after that segment, Walter Craig wakes up and it's a beautiful day and he's had the strangest nightmare. <laughs> and then he gets a call from the same person in at the beginning of his dream, inviting him out to the country. And we end the movie on the exact same opening shots of the movie, and that's where the philosophical horror comes in. Is this guy trapped in an endless loop? Is he always gonna gonna you know, is he dreaming this dream forever? What do you guys think? And you know, even in the opening segment, and I had not seen this before, as I said, I saw I watched it once. Even in the opening segment, I wondered whether that was what was going on because he the way he spoke about having been there before or, or, ha- or knowing all these people and knowing what was going to happen, part of me was just, I fleetingly thought, I wonder if this is a, a loop. Like if he, it's a time loop that he can't get himself out of. And they don't explicitly say that, but yeah, the, the impression is left that, that that is the case. And that, so not only is he doomed to live that loop forever, but he can't change the bad things that he knows are going to happen. And that is the, yeah, that's the philosophical horror that, that really, stuck with me. So I put it to you both. Is this the first time loop movie? I don't know. It's really interesting how 
how he he has he, he if if this is all a dream and a repeating time loop dream he has the experiences of dreams that we have in real life where we wake up and we we feel like we remember a moment or, or a thing that happened but we can't remember the rest because it's all it's all expiring out of our short-term memory um and and uh how to have that happen in a dream you're in a dream and then you're you're remembering something from the previous loop like you would in real life and then that's remembering yeah it's 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 the kind of twilight zone ending that happens you just like going off thinking thinking about all these other things uh, like you mentioned that it's a um it's a, a mind bender yeah and can the loop be changed in any way are there are there ways he could get out of it if that was the because that late there are certainly later time loop movies where that's sort of the focus where the protagonist is trying to get out of it and no i don't know i don't have film history to mind enough to know whether there are previous time loop movies i always like when uh, for example, people say that Citizen Kane is the first movie with flashbacks. It absolutely is not. And I can tell you more about that kind of history, but I can't tell you about time loop movies. Uh, per- perhaps they're – I don't want to go out on a limb and be wrong is what I'm saying. <laughs> well, I think the most effective spooky movies are the ones that haunt you, mm-hmm. that, that follow you home, um, so to speak. And this one, I think, does that very well. And it's it's such an interesting departure from what you think of as Ealing, which is you think of these these cozy, funny, slightly dark comedies like The Lady Killers, The Lavender Hill Mob, or especially Kind Hearts and Coronets. Um, so this was just a real treat for me. I'd put it closer to um, the movies of Val Luton, like The Body Snatcher that we watched last Halloween, um, in terms of elegant horror with beautiful cinematography, making the most of a minimal budget. This film looks great. It has some really solid and thoughtful performances. And if you want your spine thoroughly tingled by a high quality spooky film, I would recommend that you go find this. It is on the streaming service Canopy, um, or you can find it, I believe, on on DVD and Blu-ray. Shelley and Randy, any final thoughts of your own on this? There is, yes, there is a a DVD Blu-ray that has a a featurette about the movie and uh, a commentary and also has a, a really creepy looking monster on the cover who has no role in the movie and then seems to have <laughs> have come come in from the outer limits. But uh, uh, so you can enjoy that if you get the DVD. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it, and I think it's it's a pleasure to watch. And I, as I say, I, I'm somebody who is not a horror movie person or especially not a jump scare person, and that's not what this movie is about. There is that combination of psychological horror and sort of the more visceral, like, oh, my God, is, is he going to kill her or what? Uh, and, and so so those desires are satisfied, but it's an enjoyable movie for to, to watch both visually and in terms of the the content of it as well. So I'd absolutely recommend it. You may or may not like the golf sequence, but you know, not it can't be perfect. So, <laughs> And uh, also be careful when you're searching. We're looking for the 1945 Dead of Night. Of course, we'll have links in the show notes, but uh, there are many uh, properties out there called Dead of Night, and only one of them is the one you want. Well, thank you to Shelley for letting me take over her show like I was some cursed mirror. Um, on our next installment in two weeks, we will be covering an even more frightening movie about Nazis and fascists trying to take over America because 
that could thank goodness that could never happen in real life. Uh, we'll be covering the Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn gothic reporter, anti-fascist drama, Keeper of the Flame. Uh, so we hope we'll see you then. But until then, you can follow us on Twitter at Lion Tower Shield because S's cost extra. And if you enjoyed this program, consider becoming a member of The Incomparable, where you'll get access to uh, live streams, bootleg recordings, and lots of other wonderful goodies uh, of all of the different shows in The Incomparable Network. Um, for Lions, Towers, and Shields, I am your guest host, Nathan Alderman. And uh, would I host this podcast? Wouldn't I? Wouldn't I? <laughs> and I'd like to thank Shelley Brisbane. Thank you for uh, taking over the show and leaving it relatively unscathed. It was all a dream, Nathan. All a dream. A wonderful, wonderful dream. And Randy Dotenga. I'm feeling a sense of deja vu. I'm feeling <laughs> a sense of deja vu. <laughs> yes, we'll just just start this podcast over. It will begin, uh, begin again in just a few moments. I'll upload Thank it twice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. Good night and stay safe in the spookiest of seasons.